Croeso Mawr. Welcome to episode 6 of the Leanne Wood podcast. This is a special extended episode. Instead of focusing on a political issue, we look at different aspects of Valley's culture. Politics is everywhere, of course, and as Raymond Williams insisted, culture is ordinary. In this episode, I have three guests, all experts in their various fields. First, I speak with award-winning Rhonda author, Rachel Trezise. Rachel talks about her latest novel set in the Valleys on Brexit Day, as well as politics, Valleys life, her views on how working class people can be excluded from political debate. Next, I talk about a new passion of mine, cold water dipping. People have swam and dipped in cold water for years, but the lockdowns have given this pursuit a new boost in the valleys. I talk to Mr. Dipper himself, Martin Broughton, who tells me all about the benefits of getting into cold water in nature. And finally, something completely different. Wales is known throughout the world as the land of song. Gareth Williams is a retired historian, an expert in Welsh working class culture, and among many areas of expertise, he knows a lot about male voice choirs. Choirs and music of all kinds continue to thrive in the valleys, and my chat with Gareth helps to see why. This special Christmas episode of the Leanne Wood podcast is a celebration of the varying forms of the Valley's culture that enriches so many of our lives. First, it's Rachel Trezise. It's fantastic to be able to interview a Welsh award-winning author who also happens to live just up the road. I've come to visit Rachel Trezise at her home, her new home, in Trioki. First of all, Rachel, before I go into asking you about your latest book, is this your forever home now? Definitely. I'm never moving again. I never want to see another cardboard box. <laughs> it's like that, is it? <laughs> Has it been stressful? Yeah, it's been a seven-year journey building it, renovating it, moving from different houses back and forth, and finally we've got all our belongings out of storage, all into one building. It looks amazing, I've got to say. The views from here are fantastic. In terms of a space for creative activity, I don't think you could have a better place. Your latest book is the story of one day in the life of a young man, Caleb Jenkins, in the Romda, although it's called Rossaball, on Brexit Day. Easy Meat is a story, Rachel, but it's a very political novel, isn't it? Yes, I didn't mean it to be as political as it is. The way it was sold to me is because it was a commission from Parthian Books. Um, I didn't want it to be set over one day, but they had this idea of setting it on the voting day. And they sold it to me. I said, I don't want to write any more politics because I'd done two political plays just before. And they said, oh, it's not politics, it's art. It's just a story. And I sort of fell for it. And then how can a um, one-day story set on Brexit Day not be political? As the drafts went on and on, in came all the politics. There's loads of politics in there. There's the the car tax story, that one really demonstrates what living in poverty is like. Can you describe that scene? It's just kind of 
when you're on the bread line anyway, it doesn't take much to come and throw everything off balance. It could have been anything. It could have been car tax, any number of loans, credit cards, things you had going on. So Caleb is working in a meat factory in, well, I assume Merthyr. He's living close to the edge. He's supporting other family members. He's discovered that he is unable to use his car because he hasn't paid his car tax. And then there's extra additional costs to pay. And it just all seems pretty hopeless. And it's not going to take a lot to push Caleb over the edge. But he stays clinging on, doesn't he? Yeah. (laughs) He had to be, for the sake of the story, kind of every man. So I just tried to make him, you know, genial and nice so that people would like him. But also, you know, like like most good people, he has flaws. And the relationship with his brother's an interesting one because his brother's a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, that came in at the last moment because they were so alike. They're similar in age. And I just needed, I mean, I wasn't trying to be overtly political with that. I just needed something to separate them, something personality-wise. And I thought, oh, I'll make him a bit of a conspiracy theorist. I thought that was especially pertinent, given where we are now with the COVID debate and some of the discussions that are going on there. But obviously, this was set prior to COVID. So do you think that some of these conspiracy theories that have arisen in more recent times and got more prominence in in more recent times have been a long time in the making? Yeah, I think so. It seems to have been happening slowly over a long period. I mean, coming up towards Brexit, people just wouldn't listen to facts. And that is still the case now? Yeah. And what do you think that means for the future of politics? It means chaos, really, because if if people can't analyse facts, you can put anything into their heads. So whoever's got the money or the influence can drive politics anywhere anywhere they want to. Yes, I agree with you. Caleb's father, he's an interesting character. He had a business and possibly was wiped out with his business. One, because of laminate flooring and um, <laughs> two, because he, out of generosity, carpeted the homes of people who weren't insured when there was a, a flood. And that possibly was the nail in the business's coffin. He is obviously a, an interesting character, a caring character, a bit like a traditional old trade union type. Yet he gets into trouble for a comment that he makes, an innocent comment that he makes really. Can you describe what happens to Caleb's dad when he uses language that isn't acceptable these days? Yeah, he uses a word which is all, which was acceptable when he was growing up and hasn't had a chance to, to know what the fashionable term is or the term that should be used now when he uses the wrong word and gets into trouble for it, um, which I think happens to a, a lot of people. And I think was a lot to do with Brexit vote. I think there's a lot of people who don't know the right words and don't know the right language to use and so get left out of the conversation. So the term political correctness gone mad really resonates then? Yeah, I think it, like, that works both ways. I know it's something that right-wingers say all the time, but I think I feel, I feel that. Like, so, like sometimes I say to people, my in-laws and people who are older than me, you can't use language like that. And they get offended and they say, you can't tell me what language to use. I can use whatever language I want, which is right in a way. Mm. They feel excluded. I can't talk to them about politics. They feel excluded from the conversation because they don't know the words to use. So Caleb's dad 
is accused of being a racist and there are repercussions to him for that. Can you explain about what happens to him? Oh, I just, like, because he feels that he's being censored, uh, he censors himself. Mm. He was very political beforehand and he feels as though his voice is censored, he's not part of it anymore and gradually loses interest in politics. That struck me as a really interesting narrative within the book because I follow social media a lot and I see many people who should be on the same side, who should be working together for political change, arguing about terminology, arguing about racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, misogyny. And these are difficult questions and some people have been educated to use the right terminology and to understand the root of racism, homophobia and and so on. But not everybody has. Mm. What do you think are the implications of all of this in terms of our politics for the future? I think it's it's disastrous because you can't be a part of the argument if you don't know the words. So then we can't be having a discussion. That's not helpful to anybody. It's like one step forward and two step back. How do you think we can overcome this? Is there a need for more political discussion in places where people are able to be a bit freer to speak? How do we get over this? Yeah, um... I think that is the problem. We need safe spaces where we can speak to each other without fear of recrimination. And getting, social media isn't that, is no, it? No, <laughs> no, getting shouted down or cancelled, mm. you know. I mean, especially the people who are singing on, from the same hymn sheet, you know. We're mm. on the same side. It's just that the way we say in it is different. I think we just need to be gentler with each other. Listen to each other. I totally agree with, with what you said there. One of the... Interesting lines I found in the book, another interesting line I found in the book was the reference to someone who'd left the the valley. She'd got out of Rossabol like all the cleverest people did. Now, that's an issue that affects us a lot in former industrial communities. People go to university, they don't come back. You didn't, though. You stayed. Why? I had no reason to go anywhere, really. Writing's a job you could do anywhere. It involves so much imagination. So, so long as you do your research, you can write about anywhere, from anywhere. I mean, it was a lovely relationship with the Valleys growing up, and I did, I wanted, I really wanted to get out. But once I'd travelled a bit, so I've got out of my system, I was happy to stay. Like, I met my husband, and he wanted to stay, and I was happy to stay with him. There's a lot in your various books you now have a big portfolio of of work but there are certain themes I think that come out in in the ones I've read and I think I've read most of your work by now class is a key one and I remember reading your first novel in and out of the goldfish bowl when I was in my late 20s and being struck that that was the first time that I'd ever read what sounded like my voice in print Prior to that, I'd drawn strength from American women of colour, people like Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker. And I know that those writers have inspired you as well, which is interesting. But class is a key issue coming from that working class background, understanding how people in poverty really struggle. You've obviously had a difficult time growing up. And that's reflected in In and Out of the Goldfish Bowl. Can you talk a little bit about the class basis of where you come from in your writing? 
Well, yeah, the, cl- the class basis is not sort of deliberate. I only write from things I've experienced and know. So it's completely natural. A lot of people think I'm laying it on thick to sort of shock. And I'm not at all. That's just the life I've known and can still see around me. It's just completely natural to me. I you must read. be able to see that what you write is not available elsewhere. Your voice is unique. Yeah, well, yeah, I've come, I've come to understand that now. But when I started writing, no, I didn't, because I read people like Mayor Angelo and Tony Morrison, and that kind of literature existed in America. Of course, not so much in Britain. But it, it never interested me to read sort of middle-class English literature anyway. So I wasn't affected by that. So I didn't feel as if I was doing anything different, really. I sort of thought I was writing a Welsh version of I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. <laughs> and I thought that people would understand that. You so just it, was kind of, it was kind of a shock to me when people were like, oh, this is so unusual, mm. you know. Well, it is very different, and I genuinely can't think of anything that is similar or that reflects the working-class voice of post-industrial Wales like you've been able to do. And linked with all of that class in your work is politics, and you come at politics from a, a specific place, I would say. I know that you supported Plaid Cymru in the last Senate election. Cheers for that. I'm really <laughs> grateful to you. But where would you say you sit on the political spectrum? What is your politics? Can you describe it? Just a socialist. The kind of socialism changes here and there. Like, the edges change, but at the heart, I'm just a socialist. So I just want some kind of equality. And you've felt like this all your life? Yeah, all my life. Even before I understood party politics, really. I think in the run, it's just sort of inbred in you. The question of... Welsh independence, do you see that as a potential vehicle to achieve socialism? I think it has to be, because we've been trying so hard for so long to do it a different way and just get in the way. I think we have to look at other options. So this is the last chance kind of thing? The, yeah, well, yeah, kind of. The option I think with COVID, I think now politically people understand that the Senate is there uh, in a way they didn't before, because the COVID rules are coming directly from Wales rather than Westminster. So I think now that people understand that we can do things without Westminster. How do you think we can get closer to realising independence and socialism in Wales? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's a big that's question. The, that's the difficult thing. <laughs> it is. Well, I'm really grateful to you for reflecting on politics, on some of your work. We haven't had time to go into many of the other books that you've written I'm confident that there's a lot more of Rachel Trezise to come and I can't wait to read it. Diolch yeah, Rachel. Thank you, thanks. Easy Meat by Rachel Trezise is published by Parthian Books. Martin Broughton is the Rhonda's Mr Dipper. He's doing an amazing job encouraging people to get the benefits that are available from getting into the cold water. I went to have a chat with him about it next to the top lake in Cumclidach Countryside Park. Martin, can you tell me, first of all, how did you start dipping? I started about 10, 12 years ago. A friend of mine got me into it, a Russian lady called mm. Svetlana, who lives in Blaincombe, and she used to come on to my Active Woods walking group. An absolutely amazing lady. She was a track and field athlete, international athlete, when she was a teenager. 
and became physiotherapist and worked in field hospitals in Afghanistan, rehabilitated American soldiers. She was fantastic. So she still does massage and everything today. But she got me into it up in the waterfalls in, in Blaincombe, mm-hmm. where, where she lived. She would go there every day to, you know, as as she used to, and a lot of Russian people to do. And yeah, she, she got me into it. So we, it wasn't a regular thing then as it is now. But we, I used to run a uh, New Year's Day dip the morning after New Year's Eve to give her the, uh, <laughs> the, the party and the celebrations. Uh, so we've had 2019, just the year before COVID, we had uh, 60 people there. So we've we done these for nine years um, as a charity fundraiser for local organisations. Uh, Trevor Boys Club, we used to raise money for quite regular. So every New Year's Day we would take a walk to, to the top of Pempeach and then whoever wanted to could get in the ferry pool on the way back in. So the Welcome to Woods guys would have uh, hot teas and coffees and soup going on a campfire on the side and we'd have a tarp up and whoever wanted to get in could get in. So I'd say the last one we done before COVID, we had 60 people there. But it hasn't it's, it's happened fantastic, since. but it hasn't happened since. So why do so many people want to do something like that in the middle of winter when it's freezing cold? What on earth possesses people? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a one-off event, that is. But to, me and my wife, Joe, we started doing it over the lockdown period on, on a more regular basis then. Um, and it happened to be winter time, so we just started doing it in in the middle of winter. Did you so have to persuade Joe to get in with you? Or? No, I think it's the opposite, really. <laughs> she was the one with you. Yeah, play Joe, no, well she done. likes the outdoors as well. And um, but yeah, I think it it is to get a bit harder. But then you've got to gear yourself up a bit different for the winter. Then so warmer clothing, the thick dry robes, having a drink there after and warming yourself up straight after then so you know we'd start with a brisk walk here and then a brisk walk back and to get the body temperature back up i've only just started doing this through the summer and you and i have just been in i'm still feeling a little bit cold but there are definitely benefits i mean i can feel energy levels increase i can feel like a there's a zing about me after i've been in can you explain the health benefits? Why why does it make me feel so good? <laughs> yeah, after looking into it, I think the body produces endorphins, the feel-good hormones, um, but also I think the, the body thinks it's under attack, so it starts boosting the immune system and releasing all the, the immune-boosting chemicals in the body. And yeah, so and because it's in a controlled environment, you know you're not under attack. You know, the, it's, it's a way to regularly boost your immune system. You know, and and uh, as we talked about earlier, you know, you you notice the aches and pains that start disappearing. You you fight off in colds, infections are a lot easier. And it's you know with with the, with the guy um, you know Wim Hof, he's he's done a lot of scientific exploration into it and yeah they, that's right like there's lots of science behind it now that um you know you can look into and is it is proves the benefits like of the cold water therapy it's definitely got a calming effect as well which i presume is beneficial for mental health purposes yeah do you yeah. do you know much about why it helps you feel so calm so i say releasing them um, hormones and chemicals in the body the the, the calming ones it, it and and i think 
being in nature as well. Mm. So we get that calming effect just being in nature, whatever we're doing. So if you're combining the cold water therapy in nature, I think is a lot different. And I'm in a cold shower in the house, and I'm mm. in a I'm in a cold shower outdoors. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's combining the nature and everything as well. Okay, can you tell us then some top tips for for making sure everyone can stay safe? If you've never done this before, what are the things you need to take into consideration? How can we make sure that when we do dip, we're all as safe as we possibly can be? Yeah, so so the safety is a is a big thing. Definitely going and wrecking the site first. So make sure you're, you're familiar with the area. You know, seeing what's in the water, there's no no objects in in the pool you're going in, and making sure that it's it's clean water as well. So I just say as a rule of thumb to dip above any houses and or make sure there's no farms and everything above you. So so we generally dip in in fresh water. I know people do go in rivers, but I don't know. There's a the, risk. There is a the risk. I think you know. I think that you're absolutely right. If you can dip in pools which are close to the source or close to the waterfalls at yeah. the tops of the valleys rather than at the bottoms of the valleys yeah. then it's much more likely that they're going to be clean isn't yeah it? yeah definitely and if there is any doubts you know not putting your head under you know mm. it'd be quite easy just to just go down to dip your shoulders under and keep your head out of the water if, you, if you're concerned of that yeah and making sure you've got the right clothing some sort of footwear because mm. you you know there's always a, a risk of sharp objects being in there so mm. so make sure you have got i do use the like rubber wetsuit boots or you can wear an old pair of trainers or an old pair of beach shoes but making sure you got something on your feet and you know get in your routine as well have a, a practice you know um, say having a, a, a micro fleece towel a changing robe mm. in winter thick thicker robes and warmer clothes and getting out and having a warm drink then and warming yourself back up to get that core temperature back up then. I think that's really important. When you come out, you need to be moving quickly, you know, getting dressed quickly. So getting your routine, you can, you're on your way then and you're off, you know, getting, getting your body moving, getting that core temperature back up, which is what you feel like doing anyway, really. You feel you can, you know, you feel rejuvenated and you want to expend energy, you know. So, yes, yeah, and perhaps... Do, trying a cold water shower in at home just to get used to that and that shock as well you know but you know there's no doubt about it there's going to be some sort of shock you know when you get in <laughs> but i would advise for anybody to, to do it with somebody else you know or at least somebody knows where people know where you are mm-hmm. you know you're not going off on your own you know so and if you have got any health issues definitely you know having somebody with you taking advice to the doctor and, mm. and, and whatnot so yeah this you know cold water therapy has been around for a long time you know in professional sport you know in rugby and football they, they use cryogenic chambers give, give you like a, a very cold mist you go in like it's like a, i'm a cold sauna really right they have these in sports centers as well now you know cold cold rooms mm. so it's, it's a you know, recognized it's, therapy. It's, it's a recognized yeah. therapy, you know. It is it is there, you know. But what we are doing is perhaps what we're doing is a bit new for this area. <laughs> um but then again people jumped in streams and, and rivers, you know, for a long time. But we're doing it for a purpose, you know, for a, rather than a, just a bit of fun, you know. I think people have responded amazingly well to it. I've seen the group that you run on, on Facebook, Ron the Dippers, uh, has grown from just a, a couple of hundred when I joined to what is it now? Six hundred. Six hundred yeah, people. Yeah. So and and I know that there are people from 
from outside the Ronde that are involved in that as well. And it's bringing people into into our area, which is absolutely fantastic. Dear Jan Martin, thank you very much for chatting to me about this today and for all the wider work that you do in the community here, encouraging people and inspiring people to get into the water and out to the outdoors. You're doing a fantastic job. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. You can join the Ronda Valley Dippers on Facebook or you can join Martin in his Welcome to Our Woods activities in Treherbert. Has that tempted you to get into the water? If that isn't for you, then maybe singing is. Professor Gareth Williams is not just a historian, he is a singing historian. I've heard him and his choir Pendere sing on countless occasions and I can tell you that they are able to rouse emotions as well as raise the roof. Gareth Williams has also written about the history of male choral singing in Wales in a book called Do You Hear the People Sing? The Male Voice Choirs of Wales. This is more than a book about choirs. It's a book about Wales, its people and its culture. Croeso Gareth, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us, first of all, why did you decide to write this book? What is it about the story of Welsh male choirs that you felt needed telling? Diolchian, thank you for that introduction. I suppose I'm a, I am a, an historian, a retired historian, of popular culture. In other words, that there's more to history than politics and governments and elections or uh, international relations or wars and certainly princes and and all the rest of that. I was interested in what engages the attention and the interest and the support of hundreds of thousands of people. It therefore must be historically significant. I remember reading something that the uh, the great late Eric Hobsbawm said. He'd read one of the uh, gold standard books of the Oxford History of England, the one between 1870 and 1914, I think it is. And, you know, all the big stuff was there. He said, no, where's the cup final? Where's Mary Lloyd? Where's the music hall? Where are the brass bands? Things that interest hundreds of thousands of people. And they had been really beneath, beneath the concern of, of academics. And I think of the great Raymond Williams. And I know you have a very vivid interest in him, uh, Leanne. Culture is ordinary, is his famous phrase. And uh, I wanted to engage with two major preoccupations of the Welsh over 150 years or more. One was rugby football, on which I've written how successful he is for, I guess, others to judge, but also choral singing. And they're two sides of the same coin in many ways. They emerge from the same social context, it seems to me. But context is everything to me as a historian. It helped, perhaps, that I was a male voice choir, obsessive. I mean, even in my teens, when my peers were sort of a jigging around to Conway Twitty, I was listening to Yorkie Male Voice. I was listening to Martin the Arena and, uh, you know, Crossing the Plains, some of the big roses, which were just becoming recorded then. And I was peculiarly enthralled, I think, to the what I call the Rolls-Royce sound of men's voices being held back like a tidal wave, like a tide on the turn, really, and, and then released, like in some of the great uh, choruses that I enjoyed. And that seemed to me worth writing about, trying to... I knew there were many, many, many people who shared and do share that enthusiasm. And it seemed to me that it was a story that needed telling because it's a story that tells us where we come from and who we are. I think that's what really motivated my writing. Mm. Lots of the choirs were formed in areas where there was heavy industry. And in your book, you say the choir, like the chapel, offered an escape from industrial squalor. 
Can you explain the links between industry, adversity and the choir movement? Well, I'll try. It's context that's crucial to our understanding of this movement, I think. And the phrase that sticks in my mind, I'm not sure if it was Karl Marx who said it or my history teacher in school, but he said that uh, culture is the steam that comes off the back of a galloping horse. That's a very lively phrase. And 19th century Wales was a place that echoed to the thudding hooves of three galloping horses. One was spectacular population growth. Population of Wales increased four times in the 19th century. Another one was the growth of nonconformity. A chapel opening in Wales once a week throughout the 19th century. And the third one then, and in a sense binding those two together, is the growth of industry. We've got a new social order coming into existence in the 19th century. The concentrations of population around coal, around steel and iron, around slate quarrying. And people have to come to terms of this. They come in from rural Wales and some from outside Wales. It's wholly unfamiliar. It's alien. They have to adjust to this new challenging environment. And singing offered consolation. It offered fellowship. It offered a sense of achieving together. And many of the songs of the late 19th century, which are still sung, by uh, male choirs today, are about comradeship, comrades in arms, things sort of chorus, and struggle and sacrificing together. And I think any collective social activity that is undertaken voluntarily and peacefully is morally improving. It enhances the idea that there is such a thing as community. And choirs, men's choirs, women's choirs, mixed choirs, are crucial elements in binding that society together and giving it expression, giving it identity. And identities work at various levels. They are individual identity. I mean, you, you're a people who in many ways are marginalised, but they, they are literally finding a voice. Local identity. You come from this township. You come from this valley. You come from Wales. Your class identity. These, these are embattled communities. And I think choirs often will play a crucial role of healing and supporting at times of uh, economic hardship and industrial conflict. I think we've got a paradox, really. I mean, I think choirs offer an opportunity for individual expression, but at the same time, you have to sink your individuality in the collective for it to be wholly effective. And I think it is. I think that's part of its appeal over a century and a half. And I stress the word appeal. You know, this isn't sort of a, just a niche interest. Uh, at its peak, Perhaps the golden age was between around, of a call singing, male voice singing in particular, was between about 1880 and 1950. But it was attracting the attention of hundreds of thousands of people. They had supporters. They were like football supporters. And often there was a bit of mayhem as well going on. There was gambling. There was massive local interest in these activities. One example, since we're talking about rugby and soccer, in 1893, Wales won the rugby triple crown. They won it for the first time. And there were 15,000 people at the Cardiff Arms Park, watching them beat England. That year, in Pontypridd, where the National Estevard was held, there were 20,000 people in the pavilion listening to the Chief Choral Contest. Those are figures which not only have not wholly been taken on board, I think, by uh, people who are a bit dismissive of, you know, this is a monodic interest, and why bother with it? Bother with it because the people of Wales bothered with it to uh, an intense level. It's fascinating, and there has been research that shows the mental health benefits of coming together to sing. So I wonder if they would have been felt then, even though they may not have been understood to be mental health benefits. Yes. No, yes, absolutely. Yes, that companionship, I think, is certainly important. Bonding. Mm. 
People face different challenges today and the circumstances, the economic circumstances for some people are still pretty difficult. So what is the situation with regards to buyers? Are the choirs aging? Do they need new members? What should people do if they want to become a member of a choir, any choir now, not just male choirs? Yes. Well, as far as male choirs are concerned, I mean, they had habitually been written for the last 60, 70 years. It's almost the, arc, the Mark Twain syndrome, you know, but it's uh, death being greatly exaggerated. And they're constantly being replenished, curiously, though the age profile is predominantly elderly. You can't get away from that. And their size is now shrinking, and perhaps some of that shrinkage has been emphasised by COVID and choirs not being able to meet. But uh, choirs that I know of, including my own Penderis, and other choirs in the, in the Ronda, our neighbours in the Ferndale and uh, in Triorchy, uh, Cam Bryan, they've, they've now reassembled and uh, regirding themselves for further challenges. So I hope that's happening across Wales. About the, the mixed choirs, I'm less sure, but certainly can be sure that the age profile is elderly. And the better choirs do have a sprinkling of, of younger people and younger men, particularly. As far as joining a choir is, presumably you have an interest. You know people who sing in a choir. Most choirs, all choirs have websites. You can find it you know, on the computer. You can attend a local practice, make yourself known, and go along and see if you, uh, you're you bitten by the bug, or is what you expected. There are, it's not secretive, and it's not a kind of, uh, you know, a musical Freemasonry. All members are welcome, but the voice, various choirs have uh, various tests. Some have none. You know, there are all kinds of stories about uh, choristers turning up for a kind of a voice test and trying to sing a song, and uh, the committee uh, put their hands up and say, no, better stop there, and the uh, would-be choristers are fronted. Why? My, my voice is trained. Well, I don't know about that. It's, it, it's escaped and gone back to live in the wild, I think one sort of choir, a chorister was told. And I know in Pintaris, it's all history. The auditors, you know, um, choristers would turn up. And once they thought there was a voice test on audition, they literally were caught trying to climb out of the window because they couldn't face it. Very few tests of that kind. Are, in, are adopted these days. So people are just very glad to see the tradition uh, continue. But it is a tradition. It is a, still a lively tradition. What's that song by David Ewan? Ama Oheed. And uh, choirs are Ama Oheed. And I think they've been a vital component of Welsh cultural identity for the last 150 years. And I hope they continue to be for many more years. You're absolutely right, Gareth, and choirs informal in the pub during a rugby match or formally in a concert like the ones I've seen you performing with your colleagues on many occasions are a vitally important part of Welsh culture and our tradition, and long may that continue. Diolchan Fawr Gareth Williams. Can You Hear the People Sing by Gareth Williams is published by Goma. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, 
Dialk to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast.